0: Ennead 4, Book 3, Part 3, by Plotinus. Translated by Kenneth Sylvan Guthrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. C. Does the soul employ discursive reason while discarnate? The soul does not use discursive reason except while hindered by the obstacles of the body eighteen does the soul ratiocinate before entering upon the body and after having left it no she reasons only while in a body because she is uncertain embarrassed and weakened to need to reason in order to arrive at complete knowledge always betrays weakening of intellect in the arts reasoning occurs only when the artist hesitates before some obstacle where there is no difficulty in the matter art masters it and produces its work instantly the soul can reason intuitionally without ratiocination it might be objected that if the souls on high do not reason they will no longer be reasonable they remain reasonable however because they are well able to penetrate into the essence of something whenever the occasion demands it ratiocination should be considered as follows if it consist in a disposition that is always derived from intelligence in an imminent act a reflection of this power in souls these must also reason in the intelligible world, but then they have no further need of language. Likewise, when they inhabit heaven, neither do they need to take recourse to speech, as do the souls here below, as a result of their needs and uncertainties. They act in an orderly manner, and in conformity with nature, without premeditation or deliberation they know each other by a simple intuition as even here below we know our like without their talking to us by a mere glance on high every body is pure and transparent each person there is as it were an eye nothing is hidden or simulated before you have spoken your thought is already known it is probable that speech is used by the guardians and other living inhabitants of the air for they are living beings d how can the soul simultaneously be divisible and indivisible a decision will depend on the meaning of the terms nineteen must we consider that in the soul the indivisible and the divisible are identical as if they were mingled together or should we consider the distinction between the indivisible and the divisible from some other point of view should the first be considered as the higher part of the soul and the latter as the lower just exactly as we say that one part of the soul is rational and the other part is irrational such questions can be answered only by a close scrutiny of the nature of the divisibility and indivisibility of the soul. The Body Needs the Soul for Life When Plato says that the soul is indivisible, he speaks absolutely. When he insists that she is divisible, it is always relatively to the body. He does indeed say that she becomes divisible in the bodies, but not that she has become such. Let us now examine how, by her nature, the body needs the soul to live, and what necessity there is for the soul to be present in the entire body. Since growth and emotion tend towards divisibility, by the mere fact that it feels by means of the entire body every sense-power undergoes division since it is present everywhere it may be said to be divided but as on the other hand it manifests itself everywhere as a whole it cannot really be considered as divided we cannot go further than the statement that it becomes divisible in bodies some might object that it was divided only in the sense of touch it is however also divided in the other senses since it is always the same body that receives it but only less so the case is the same with the power of growth and nutrition and if appetite have its seat in the liver and anger in the heart these appetites must be subject to the same conditions besides it is possible that the body does not receive those appetites in a mixture or that it receives them in some other manner so that they result from some of the things that the body derives from the soul by participations reason and intelligence however are not communicated to the body because they stand in no need of any organs to fulfil their functions on the contrary they find in them only an obstacle to their operations. The soul as a whole of two distinct divisible and indivisible parts. Thus the indivisible and the divisible are in the soul two distinct parts, and not two things mingled together, so as to constitute but a single one. They form a single whole, composed of two parts each of which is pure and separable from the other by its characteristic power if then the part which in the body becomes divisible receives from the superior part the power of being indivisible this same part might simultaneously be divisible and indivisible as a mixture of divisible nature and of the indivisible power received by it from the higher part e relations between soul and body if functions are not localized the soul will not seem entirely within us 20 are the above mentioned and other parts of the soul localized in the body or are some localized and others not this must be considered because if none of the parts of the soul are localized and if we assert that they are nowhere either in or out of the body the latter will remain inanimate and we will not be able to explain the manner of the operations occurring by help of the organs if on the other hand we assign a location in the body to certain parts of the soul without localizing other parts the unlocalized parts will seem not to be within us, and, consequently, not the whole of our soul will seem to be in the body. Space is corporeal. The body is within the soul. Of the soul, neither a part nor the whole is in the body as a locality. The property of space is to contain some body where everything is divided, it is impossible for the whole to be in every part. But the soul is not body, and the soul contains the body, rather than the body contains the soul. Nor is the body a vase, for proximate transmission of the soul. Nor is the soul in the body as in a vase. In this case, the body would be inanimate, and would contain the soul as in a vase or locality if the soul be considered as concentrated in herself and as communicating to the body something of herself by close transmission as the stoics would say that which the soul will transmit to this vase would for her become something lost many metaphysical objections to the conception of soul as localized. Considering location in the strict sense of the word, it is incorporeal, and consequently cannot be a body. It would no longer need the soul. Besides, if the soul be in the body, as if in a locality, the body will approach the soul by its surface, and not by itself many other objections can be raised to the theory that localizes the soul in the body under this hypothesis indeed place would have to be carried around along with the thing in which it will locate but that which would carry place around with it would be a monstrosity moreover if the body be defined as being an interval it will be still less true to say that the soul is in the body as a locality for an interval should be empty but the body is not empty being within emptiness nor is the soul in the body as a quality in a substrate nor will the soul be in the body as a quality is in a substrate the attribute of being a substrate is a mere affection like a colour, or a figure, but the soul is separable from the body. Nor is the soul in the body as a part in the whole. Nor will the soul be in the body as a part in the whole. For the soul is not a part of the body, nor is it a part of the living whole, for this would still demand explanation of the manner of this being within it she will not be within it as wine in a jar or as one jar in another nor as one thing is within itself as the manichaeans thought nor is the soul in the body as a whole in a part nor will the soul be in the body as a whole is in its parts for it would be ridiculous to call the soul a whole and the body the parts of that whole nor will the soul be in the body as form in matter nor will the soul be in the body as form is in matter for the form that is engaged in matter is not separable moreover that form descends upon matter implies the preliminary existence of matter but it is the soul that produces form in matter and therefore the soul must be distinct from form though the soul be not form begotten in matter the soul might be a separable form but this theory would still have to explain how this form inheres in the body since the soul is separable from the body the soul is said to be in the body because the body alone is visible all men say that the soul is in the body however because the soul is not visible while the body is observing the body and judging that it is animated because it moves and feels we say that it has a soul and we are thereby led to suppose that the soul is in the body but if we could see and feel the soul and if we could realize that she surrounds the whole body by the life she possesses and that she extends around it equally on all sides, till the extremities, we would say that the soul is in no way in the body, but that on the contrary the accessory is within its principle, the contained within the container, what flows within the immovable. This leaves the question of the manner of the soul's presence. twenty-one how would we answer a person who without himself making any statements in regard to the matter should ask us how the soul is present to the body whether the whole soul is present to the body in the same manner or whether one of her parts is present in one way and another in some other way the soul in a body as a pilot in a ship since none of the comparisons that we have formerly examined seems to express the relation of the soul to the body properly we might say that the soul is in the body as the pilot is in the ship this illustration is satisfactory in that it emphasizes the soul's being separable from the body but it does not properly indicate the presence of the soul in the body if the soul be present in the body, as a passenger in a ship, it would be there only by accident, and the illustration is not yet satisfactory if changed to the pilot's presence in the ship he is steering, for the pilot is not present to the whole of the ship, as the whole soul is in the body. One might illustrate the soul's presence in the body as an art inheres in its instruments, as, for instance, in the helm, which might be supposed to be alive, containing the power of steering the ship skilfully. This is still unsatisfactory, because such an art comes from without. The soul might indeed be compared to a pilot who should be incarnated in his helm, and the soul might be in the body as in some natural instrument, so that the soul would move it at pleasure. This, however, might still fail to explain the manner in which the soul would exist in her instrument. Therefore, though the latter illustration is an improvement on the former, we must still seek one which closer approaches reality. The soul present in the body as light in air. twenty-two this is the better illustration the soul is present in the body as light is present in air light is indeed present in air without being present to it that is light is present to the whole air without mingling with it and light remains within itself while the air escapes when the air within which light radiates withdraws from the light the air keeps none of the light but it is illuminated so long as the air remains subject to the action of light air therefore is in light rather than light is in air while explaining the generation of the universe therefore plato properly locates the body of the world in the soul and not the soul in the body he also states that there is a part of the soul that contains the body and another in which there is no body in this sense that there are soul powers of which the body has no need the case is similar with the other souls their powers in general are not present to bodies and only those powers of which the body stands in need are present to it these however are present to the body without being built up, either on the members, or upon the body as a whole. For sensation, the faculty of feeling is entirely present to the whole organ which is feeling, as for instance to the whole brain. Likewise for the other functions, the different faculties are each present to a different organ. I shall explain myself. While the soul-power is everywhere, the principle of action is localized in the special organ. 23. Since for the body, being animated amounts to being penetrated by the light shed by the soul, every part of the body participates therein in some particular manner. Each organ, according to its fitness, receives the power suitable to the function it fulfills thus we may say that the power of sight resides in the eyes that of hearing in the ears that of taste in the tongue that of smell in the nose that of touch in the whole body since for the latter sense the whole body is the organ of the soul now as the instruments for touch are the first nerves which also possess the power of moving the organism as they are the seat of this power as besides the nerves originate in the brain in the brain has been localized the principle of sensation and appetite in short the principle of the whole organism no doubt because it was thought that the power which uses the organs is present in that part of the body where are the origins of these organs it would have been better to say that it is the action of the power that makes use of the organs that originates in the brain for that part of the body from which starts the movement impressed on the organ had to serve somewhat as a foundation for the power of the workman a power whose nature is in harmony with that of the organ it sets in motion or rather this part of the body does not serve as foundation for this power for this power is everywhere but the principle of the action is in that part of the body in which is the very principle of that organ reason is in the hand but not in the brain which is the seat of the intermediary the power of sensation on the other hand as the power of sensation and the power of appetite which belong to the sensible and imaginative soul are beneath reason because they are related to what is inferior while reason is above the result was that the ancients localized reason in the highest part of the animal in the head not that reason is in the brain but because reason is seated in the sense power by the intermediation of which only reason may be said to reside in the brain the sense-power surely had to be attributed to the body and within the body to the organs most capable of lending themselves to its action reason which has no direct dealing with the body had however to be in relation with the sense-power which is a form of the soul and can participate in reason the sense-power does to a certain extent judge and the power of imagination has something intellectual last the appetite and the desire somehow connect with imagination and reason reason therefore is in the head not as in a locality but because it is in relation with the sense-power which resides in that organ as has been shown above growth is localized in the liver anger and the heart as the power of growth nutrition and generation operates all through the entire body and as it is by the blood that the body is nourished as the blood is contained in the veins and as the veins as well as the blood originate in the liver this organ has been assigned as the seat of that part of the soul called appetite for appetite is involved in the power of begetting of feeding and increasing the body further as the blood purified by respiration is subtle light mobile and pure the heart becomes a suitable instrument for the power of anger for the blood that possesses these qualities starts from the heart therefore with good reason the heart is assigned as the seat of the turbulent convulsions of the power of anger f where goes the soul after death the soul after death goes to the place suited to it by retribution twenty four whither will the soul pass when she shall have left the body she will not go where there is nothing suitable to receive her she could not pass into what is not naturally disposed to receive her unless there be something that would attract a soul that had lost her prudence in this case the soul remains in whatever is capable of receiving her and follows it whither that receptive matter can exist and beget now as there are different places it is necessary that the difference of the dwellings in which the souls come to dwell should be derived from the disposition of each soul and of justice which reigns above beings no one indeed could escape the punishment which unjust actions deserve the divine law is inevitable and possesses the power of carrying out the judgments according to its decrees. The man who is destined to undergo a punishment is, in spite of himself, dragged towards that punishment, and is driven around by a movement that never stops. Then, as if wearied of struggling against things to which he desired to offer resistance, he betakes himself to the place that is suitable to him, and thus by a voluntary movement undergoes involuntary suffering the law prescribes the greatness and duration of the punishment later as a result of the harmony that directs everything in the universe the end of the punishment endured by the soul coincides with the soul's receiving strength to leave those places Pure incorporeal souls dwell within intelligence in divinity the souls that have a body thereby feel the corporeal punishments they are undergoing pure souls however that do not carry along with them anything corporeal necessarily enjoy the privilege of abiding in the incorporeal being free from having to dwell in anything corporeal as they have no bodies they reside where is being and essence and the divine that is in the divinity there in the divinity with the intelligible beings dwells the pure soul if you wish to locate the soul still more exactly go to where are the intelligible entities and if you are looking for them do not look for them with the eyes as if they were physical bodies g what are the conditions of the operation of memory and imagination cosmic questions about memory depend on exact definition of what memory is 25 memory raises the following questions does memory generally remain with the bodies that have issued from here below does it subsist only in some of them in this case is memory general or special durable or transitory these questions cannot be answered until we define that interior principle in us to which memory belongs that is we shall have to determine not what is memory but in what kind of beings it must exist by virtue of its nature for elsewhere we have often defined and treated of memory itself. We must therefore exactly define that principle within us to which memory is natural. Memory inapplicable except to beings subject to limitations of time. As memory presupposes a knowledge or casual experience, memory cannot be attributed to beings that are impassable and outside of the limitations of time memory is therefore inapplicable to the divinity to essence and to intelligence all of whom exist outside of time as eternal and immutable without a conception of priority or subsequentness who ever abide in the same condition without ever experiencing any change how could that which is identical and immutable make use of memory, since it could neither acquire nor keep a disposition differing from the preceding one, nor have successive thoughts of which the one would be present, while the other had passed into the condition of being remembered. There is a timeless memory consisting of self-consciousness, it may be objected that nothing hinders intelligence from knowing the changes of other beings such as for instance the periodical revolutions of the world without itself undergoing any change but then it would have to follow the changes of the moving object as it would think first of one thing and then of another besides thought is something else than memory and we must not apply to self-consciousness the name of memory indeed intelligence does not busy itself with retaining its thoughts and with hindering them from escaping otherwise it might also fear lest it lose its own nature being for the soul herself remembering is not the same as recalling innate notions when the soul has descended here below she may possess these notions without thinking of them, especially if it be only recently that she entered into the body. The ancient philosophers seem to have applied the terms memory and reminiscence to the actualization by which the soul thinks of the entities she possesses. That, however, is a quite special kind of memory, entirely independent of time definition of memory depends on whether it belongs to the soul or organism but perhaps our solution seems superficial and appears to rest on an insufficient analysis it might indeed be asked whether memory and reminiscence instead of belonging to the rational soul might not characterize the lower soul or the composite of soul and body that we call the organism if indeed they belong to the lower soul from where does the latter derive them and how does she possess them the same question may further be asked in the case of the organism to answer all this we shall as said above have to study our own interior principle to which memory belongs if it be the soul that possesses memory, we shall have to ask what faculty or part thereof is constituted by memory. If, as has been urged by some, it be the organism to which memory belongs, and, considering the organism as the sentient principle, how could this faculty operate within it? Besides, what is it that we should call the organism? Further, is it the same power that perceives sense-objects and intelligible entities or are there two distinct powers the psychology of sensation twenty six if the two elements which compose the animal share in the act of sensation the sensation is common to the soul and the body such as the acts of piercing or weaving thus in sensation the soul plays the part of the workman and the body that of his tool the body undergoes the experience and serves as messenger to the soul the soul perceives the impression produced in the body or by the body or she forms a judgment about the experience she has undergone consequently sensation is an operation common to the soul and body in any case memory is peculiar to the soul and body this could not be the state of affairs with memory by which the soul having already through sensation perceived the impression produced in the body preserves it or dismisses it it might be claimed that memory also is common to the soul and body because its efficiency depends on the adjustments of the bodies no doubt the body can hinder or promote the exercise of memory without this faculty ceasing to be peculiar to the soul how shall we try to prove that the memory of knowledge acquired by study belongs to the compound and not to the soul alone if the organism be the composite of soul and body in the sense that it is some third object begotten by their union it will be absurd to say that it is neither soul nor body indeed it could not be anything different from the soul and body neither if the soul and body were transformed into the composite of which they are the elements nor if they formed a mixture so that the soul would be no more than potentially in the organism even in this case it is still the soul and the soul alone that would remember thus in a mixture of honey and wine it is the honey alone that should be credited with any sweetness that may be tasted that the soul is incarnate is not the cause of her possessing memory it may again be objected that it is indeed the soul that remembers but only because she is resident in the body and is not pure she must be affected in some particular manner to be able to impress the body with the forms of sense objects her seat must be in the body to receive these forms and to preserve them but to begin with these forms could not have any extension then they could not be either Stoic seal-prints or impressions, for in the soul there is no impulsion nor any imprint similar to that of a seal on wax, and the operation itself by which it perceives sense-objects is a kind of thought or intellection. Indeed it would be impossible to speak of an impression in the act of thought. Thought has no need of the body or a corporeal quality it is besides necessary for the soul to remember her movements as for instance her desires which have not been satisfied and whose object the body has not attained for what could the body tell us of an object which the body has not yet reached speaking of thoughts how could the soul conjointly with the body remember things which the body by its very nature could absolutely not know memory belongs to the soul alone doubtless we will have to acknowledge that there are affections which pass from the body into the soul but there are also affections which belong exclusively to the soul because the soul is a real being with characteristic nature and activities in this case the soul must have desires and recall them remembering that they have or have not been satisfied because by her nature she does not form part of the things which are as heraclitus said in a perpetual flow otherwise we could not attribute to the soul synesthesia or common feeling conscience reflection or the intuition of herself if she did not possess them by her nature she would not acquire them by union with the body doubtless there are activities which the soul cannot carry out without the assistance of the organs but she herself possesses the faculties or powers from which these activities are outgrowths besides she by herself possesses other faculties whose operations are derived from her alone among these is memory whose exercise is only hindered by the body indeed when the soul unites with the body she forgets when she separates from the body and purifies herself she often recovers memory since the soul possesses memory when she is alone the body with its changeable nature that is ever subject to a perpetual flow is a cause of forgetfulness and not of memory the body therefore is for the soul the stream of lethe or forgetfulness to the soul alone therefore belongs memory memory belongs both to the divine soul and to that derived from the world-soul twenty seven to which soul however does memory belong to the soul whose nature is more divine and which constitutes us more essentially, or to the soul that we receive from the universal soul, the rational and irrational souls. Memory belongs to both, but in one case it is general, and in the other particular. When both souls are united, they together possess both kinds of memory. If they both remain separate, each remembers longer what concerns herself and remembers less long what concerns the other. That is the reason people talk of the image of Hercules being in the Hells. Now this image remembers all the deeds committed in this life, for this life particularly falls to her lot. The other souls, which by uniting within themselves the rational part to the irrational, together possess both kinds of memory, they yet cannot remember anything but the things that concern this life and which they have known here below or even the actions which have some relation with justice what the rational soul if separated would remember of life we must still clear up what would be said by hercules that is the man himself alone and separated from his image what then would the rational soul if separated and isolated say the soul which has been attracted by the body knows everything that the man speaking strictly has done or experienced here below in course of time at death the memories of earlier existences are reproduced but the soul out of scorn allows some to escape her having indeed purified herself from the body she will remember the things that were not present to her during this life if after having entered into another body she happened to consider the past she will speak of this life which will become foreign to her of which she has recently abandoned and of many other earlier facts the circumstances which happen during a long period will always remain buried in oblivion but we have not yet discovered what the soul when isolated from the body will remember to solve this question we shall be forced to decide to which power of the soul memory belongs memory does not belong to appetite because it may be reduced to sensation Twenty-eight does memory belong to the powers by which we feel and know is it by appetite that we remember the things that excite our desires and by anger that we remember the things that irritate us some will think so it is indeed the same faculty which feels pleasure and retains remembrance thereof thus when for instance appetite meets an object which has already made it experience pleasure it remembers this pleasure on seeing this object why indeed should appetite not be similarly moved by some other object why is it not moved in some manner by the same object why should we not thus attribute to it the sensation of things of this kind further why should appetite itself not be reduced to the power of sensation and not do likewise for everything naming each thing by what predominates therein what appetite keeps is an affection but not a memory must we attribute sensation to each power but in a different manner in this case for instance it will be sight and not appetite which will perceive sense objects but appetite will be later wakened by sensation which will be relayed as the stoics would say and though it does not judge of sensation it will unconsciously feel the characteristic affection the same state of affairs will obtain with anger it will be sight which will show us an injustice but it will be anger which will resent it just so when a shepherd notices a wolf near his flock the dog though he have not yet observed anything will be excited by the smell or noise of the wolf it certainly is appetite which experiences pleasure and which keeps a trace of it but this trace constitutes an affection or disposition and not a memory it is another power which observes the enjoyment of pleasure and which remembers what occurred this is proved by the fact that memory is often ignorant of the things in which appetite has participated though appetite still preserve traces thereof memory does not belong to the faculty of sensation twenty nine can memory be referred to sensibility is the faculty that feels also the one that remembers but if the image of the soul the irrational soul possess the memory as we said above there would be in us two faculties that will feel further if sensibility be capable of grasping notions it will also have to perceive the conceptions of discursive reason or it will be another faculty that will perceive both memory does not belong exclusively to the power of perception is the power of perception common to the reasonable soul and to the irrational soul and will we grant that it possesses the memory of sense objects and of intelligible things to recognize that it is one and the same power which equally perceives both kinds of things is already to take one step towards the solution of the problem but if we divide this power into two there will nevertheless still be two kinds of memory further if we allow two kinds of memory to each of the two souls the rational and the irrational there will be four kinds of memory memory is not identical with feeling or reasoning are we compelled to remember sensations by sensibility whether it be the same power which feels sensation and which remembers sensation or is it also discursive reason which conceives and remembers conceptions but the men who reason the best are not those who also remember the best and those who have equally delicate senses do not all on that account have an equally good memory on the contrary some have delicate senses while others have a good memory without however being capable of perceiving equally well on the other hand if feeling and remembering be mutually independent there will be outside of sensibility another power which will remember things formerly perceived by sensation and this power will have to feel what it is to remember memory belongs to imagination to solve all these difficulties it may be stated that nothing hinders the admission that the actualization of the sensation produces in memory an image and that the imagination which differs from sensation possesses the power of preserving and recalling these images it is indeed imagination in which sensation culminates and when sensation ceases imagination preserves its representation if then this power preserve the image of the absent object it constitutes memory according as the image remains for a longer or shorter time memory is or is not faithful and our memories last or are effaced memory of sense-objects therefore belongs to the imagination if this faculty of memory be possessed by different persons in unequal degrees this difference depends either on the difference of forces or on practice or exercise or on the absence or presence of certain bodily dispositions which may or may not influence memory or disturb it but elsewhere we shall study the question further intellectual conceptions are not entirely preserved by imagination thirty what about intellectual conceptions are they also preserved by imagination if imagination accompany every thought and if later it as it were preserves its image we should thus have the memory of the known object otherwise some other solution will have to be sought perhaps reason whose actualization always accompanies thought has the function of receiving it and transmitting it to imagination indeed thought is indivisible and so long as it is not evoked from the depths of intelligence it remains as it were hidden within it reason develops it and making it pass from the state of thought to that of image spreads it out as it were in a mirror for our imagination that is why we grasp the thought only when the soul which always desires rational thought has achieved a thought there is a difference between thought and the perception of thought we are always thinking but we do not always perceive our thought that comes from the fact that the principle that perceives the thoughts also perceives the sensations and occupies itself with both in turn the two kinds of memory imply two kinds of imagination thirty one if theory belong to imagination and if both the rational and irrational souls possess memory we will have two kinds of imagination intellectual and sensual and if both souls are separate each of them will possess one kind of imagination the theory of two kinds of imagination within us in the same principle would not account for there being two kinds of imagination and it would leave unsolved the question to which of them memory belongs if memory belong to both kinds of imagination there will always be two kinds of imagination for it cannot be said that the memory of intelligible things belongs to the one and that of sense-things to the other otherwise we would have two animate beings with nothing in common if then memory equally belong to both imaginations what difference is there between them besides why do we not notice this difference here is the cause of the two imaginations one always predominates or overshadows the other. When both kinds of imagination harmonize, they cooperate in the production of a single act. The most powerful dominates, and only a single image is produced within us. The weaker follows the stronger, as the feeble reflection of a powerful light. On the contrary, when both kinds of imagination disagree and struggle, then only one of them manifests and the other is entirely ignored just as we always ignore that we have two souls for both souls are melted into a single one and the one serves as vehicle for the other the one sees all but preserves only certain memories when she leaves the body and leaves in oblivion greater part of the things that relate to the other likewise after we have established relations with friends of an inferior order we may acquire more distinguished friendships and we remember the former but very little though we remember the latter very distinctly partition of the fund of memory between the two souls what about the memory of friends of parents of a wife of the fatherland and of all that a virtuous man may properly remember in the image of the soul the irrational soul these memories will be accompanied by a passive affection but in the man the rational soul they will not be so accompanied the affections exist since the beginning in the inferior soul in the superior soul as a result of her dealings with the other there are also some affections but only proper affections the inferior soul may well seek to remember the actions of the superior soul especially when she herself has been properly cultivated for she can become better from her very principle up and through the education she receives from the other the higher soul must willingly forget what comes to her from the inferior soul when she is good she can besides by her power contain the subordinate soul the more she desires to approach the intelligible world the more she must forget the things from here below unless the whole life she has led here below be such that she has entrusted to her memory none but praiseworthy things even in our own world indeed it is a fine thing to release oneself from human preoccupations it would therefore be still finer to forget them all in this sense we might well say that the virtuous soul should be forgetful she thus escapes manifoldness reduces manifoldness to unity and abandons the indeterminate she therefore ceases to live with manifoldness lightens her burdens and lives for herself indeed while remaining here below she desires to live in the intelligible world and neglects all that is foreign to her nature she therefore retains but few earthly things when she has arrived to the intelligible world she has more of them when she inhabits the heavens hercules in heaven may well vaunt his valor but even this valor seems to him trifling when he has arrived at a region still holier than heaven, when he dwells in the intelligible world, when he has risen over Hercules himself by the force manifested in those struggles which are characteristic of veritable sages. End of Ennead 4 Book 3